Today we're going to continue our study of Galatians chapter 4. In my last message, we ended in verse 9, and today we'll cover verses 10 through 20. But to gain the context, I'm going to back up and start reading again from verse 1. So I'll read Galatians 4, verses 1 through 20. So if you'd like to turn there, you may want to read along. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time, when you did not know God, You are slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. I beg of you, brethren, Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong. But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe. But you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out in in order that you may seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. pray that the gospel would come forth and minister to this people and to any who are hearing online as well. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So having read the test, the text, I plan to cover the points that I see here. Number one, the observance of special days. Then number two, follow Paul's example. Number three, Paul's bodily illness. Number four, I just said don't shoot the messenger. And then number five, the rebuke is only due to love. So in point number one, up to now in the text, Paul is primarily considered the issue of these Galatians, uh, these false prophets that were speaking to the Galatians, wanting to require circumcision as an addition to the grace of Christ to, to be part of the church. 
in verses 10 through 11, and though he doesn't spend a lot of time on this, he does mention that you observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Now with these two little sentences, he's making it abundantly clear that this letter is not solely focused on circumcision. Though circumcision was the biggest issue in the Galatian church, uh, the point of the whole letter is that if anything supplants the gospel, then that thing is a false gospel in and of itself. The false apostles, or the Judaizers, were intent on having new Christians become Jews and, and perform the deeds necessary under the Torah law uh, in order to become a believer. The Jewish law given in the Torah required strict obedience to Sabbath-keeping, to feast days, to special years, such as the year of Jubilee, or the seven-year cycle of fallow ground plant in their planting. Uh, the observance of these special days, months, and seasons, and years were enforced. For some infractions, the penalty was death. Numbers 15.36, for example, a man was stoned to death for gathering sticks on the Sabbath. And today you might still run across groups who insist that you hold Old Testament uh, Jewish ceremonial law. But more common than that are various groups that add to or replace the gospel with their own brand of newfound faith. Paul's point remains the same that it was in Galatians 1 verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. So whether the false gospel being presented to you is circumcision, the keeping of special days, or any other legalistic work that's required for either gaining your salvation or the keeping of it, we must reject that wholeheartedly. Faith in Jesus Christ alone is all that is required for salvation. And even that faith is given to you by God. So when Paul says in verse 11, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain, he's saying that it's possible that he spent his time preaching the gospel to a reprobate people, and that no matter how hard he implores them to leave behind a workspace righteousness, they may not even have ears to hear it. But I'll have you notice in this verse two small key words. He says, I fear for you. At this point in chapter 4, we see a shepherd's heart shining through. He's not fearing that his own efforts have been wasted and that he could have better spent this time in more worthwhile pursuits rather than ministering to a bunch of stiff-necked people. But rather he's saying, I fear for you. Because if the Galatians continue to trust in their own works for salvation, uh, then that continual bad course of action will show that they are not among God's elect. They will spend eternity in hell, apart from fellowship with God and all other believers. And whereas in chapter 3, Paul sternly rebukes the Galatians, calling them foolish in verses 1 through 3, his love for them is shown in in the speech which follows in the remaining verses. And that leads us to point 2, follow Paul's example. Paul says in verse 12, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am. For I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong. Now Paul is speaking gently to them by calling them brethren. And though his message hasn't changed since the beginning of this letter, 
his tenderness towards this wayward people has increased. And whereas at the first he called them foolish, he now calls them brothers. And secondly, thanks to John Gill for explaining the wording of the scripture, he states it this way. The meaning is, be as I am and do as I do, because I was as you are. So the Syriac and Arabic versions read the words. So Paul is telling the Jews in the Galatian church that he can emphasize with what they're feeling. Paul tells us in Acts 23, 6, that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And yet the Lord quite literally threw Paul off of his high horse and humbled him on the road to Damascus and taught him personally for three years, as we're told in Galatians chapter 1. So then if Paul could be converted and taught by the Lord to leave behind the ceremonial law and to trust in faith alone in the risen Christ, then certainly these Galatians could, quote, become as I am. And likewise, you and I can, though probably not tempted to run and place our trust in the ceremonial law, we could certainly learn the lesson of the gospel and place our trust in Christ alone for our salvation, as did the Apostle Paul. Now, this is very similar to what Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4.16. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. And then again in 1 Corinthians 11.1. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And that is the attitude we should all have when we disciple uh, those under our care. We are to do as the Pharisees did, by teaching one thing and doing another. Our Lord gave a scathing rebuke to the Pharisees by doing, that were doing just that. So when we read from Matthew 23, 25, I'm sorry, verses 23 through 25, we hear the words of our Lord, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean out the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. So the old saying of practice what you preach comes from this passage. Hypocrisy is one of the greatest sins that a leader can commit. And that's because it invalidates everything that he's taught previously. When you're taught by someone and you grow to respect that person, then you're seen to, and then, then they are seen to act in direct contradiction to what they've taught. You feel violated. You feel lied to. And while this is rampant, with false teachers, we also sometimes see this with faithful preachers. And why is that? Because even faithful preachers are sinful men. And the best example I can recall where a faithful man taught one thing and then changed what he was doing when, when new individuals showed up is the Apostle Peter. And we learned about this back in chapter 2 of Galatians. Reading again from Galatians two eleven through 14, we read, But when Cephas, or that's another name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and to hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, 
with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? So Peter's actions are the opposite of Paul's. And what Paul is telling the Galatians in uh, chapter 4, verse 12. The Apostle Paul was not a perfect man. In fact, he calls himself the chief of sinners. But hypocrisy was not one of his vices. We would do well to become as he was. And let, others, let us tell others the truth. And then let our own actions mirror that truth that we're t- saying. So point number three. Paul's bodily illness. In verses 11 through, I'm sorry, verses 13 through 15, we read, But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe. But you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Now, various commentators come down on different sides here, trying to interpret what Paul is referring to. Luther says that Paul's illness was not a disease of the body, but the physical suffering and affliction that he endured. William Perkins ascribes Paul's comments to simply refer to preaching in the weakness of the flesh a reference to the frailty of man as a means by which God brings his mighty word to his people through the humble means of mere men preaching the gospel. Timothy George, which is a more modern commentator, refers to these Reformation Age views, but adds that in recent years, most commentators have discarded both of these traditional interpretations in favor of the idea that Paul was referring here to some actual bodily illness that affected his missionary labors. He offers three theories about the nature of Paul's illness. And these are just theories because we're not told explicitly in Scripture what they are, just as we're not told uh, later as to what Paul's thorn in the flesh was either, which could very well be the same thing that he's referring to here. We just don't know. But he offers three theories, and the possibilities that many commentators have suggested include that it could be Malaria, or epilepsy, or ophthalmia, which is a serious eye disorder. These three possibilities have good reasons uh, to be suspected. Uh, So first of all, Paul's travels could very well have subjected him to malaria. He traveled through a very swampy region of Pamphylia in southern Asia Minor. And George mentions that it may have been from there that Paul may have originally planned to travel westward, through Ephesus in Greece, but he was redirected because of his illness toward the higher terrain around Pisidian Antioch. And that would have been a better place to recuperate from a bout of malaria, uh, being at a higher level above sea level. And the second possibility is that, that George mentions is epilepsy. And he bases this theory on the comments in verse 14, that Paul's bodily, uh, bodily condition was a trial to them. I remember when I was a junior in high school, a girl in my math class had a, uh, an epileptic seizure right there in class. And it was the first time I had witnessed such a sight. 
And while I'm sure the trial is obviously much worse uh, for the person suffering the seizure, um, I will say that the bystanders are not completely unaffected. In my case, several things went through my mind at, at once. My first thoughts were, well, don't stare, that's rude. And then I'm thinking, well, is there anything that I can do to, to help this poor girl? And and I hope she's not about to die right here in class. I, I didn't know any better. I thought that, that it could, she could have very well passed away right there. And uh, for, fortunately, in that case, the teacher quickly jumped into action. And it wasn't long before the school nurse was on the scene helping out as well. And to my relief, and I'm sure to hers, the seizure quickly ended and she seemed okay. And though she was pretty embarrassed at the situation. If Paul suffered from this, he could have also had to deal with the opinion in the first century that such episodes were an indication of demon possession. And yet the fruit in Paul's life uh, should have shown that opinion to be false. But if it was indeed epilepsy, the Galatians received him with courtesy and favor in spite of the discomfort uh, they may have felt in witnessing such a sight, possibly on several occasions. The third possibility that for an illness that Timothy George offers as a possibility is ophthalmia. This is a disease of the eyes. And this is a possibility due to a couple of scripture references. First off, in verse 15, Paul mentioned that if possible, they would have plucked, plucked out their own eyes and given them to him. Uh, then again, in Galatians 6.11, he mentions that he is writing with such large letters in his own hand. It's also known that Paul dictated much of what he wrote, and another wrote it down. We read in Romans 16.22, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. And in 1 Corinthians 16.21, he says, The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. And in Colossians 4.18, he writes, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. And again in 2 Thessalonians 3.17, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. 2 Thessalonians 3.17. These, these scriptures imply that someone else uh, wrote the rest of the letter quite possibly because his eyesight made it difficult for him to do it personally. But regardless of whatever the specific illness that Paul's referring to here in Galatians, uh, there are some takeaways that we could simply notice uh, due to the fact that the scriptures mention it. First of all, the illness was seen as some sort of weakness in Paul when observed by the Galatians. And when compared with the, the super apostles or these false apostles that were trying to lead them astray, um, the apostle Paul must have been seen as substandard. Second Corinthians 10.10 10 tells us, For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. And yet through the mouth and the pen of this frail, sickly, and unimpressive man, the words of the Holy Spirit were given for God's glory in the edification of his church. The Galatians received the Apostle Paul as an angel of God, or even as Christ Jesus himself. The Galatians heeded the words of our Lord from Matthew 25, verse 40. To the extent that you did it to the, one of the, these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. The next takeaway is this, and this is one place in Scripture 
where it's clear that it is not always God's will to heal people from their physical infirmities. I grew up in the charismatic slash word of faith movement. And one huge false teaching in those circles is that Jesus took all of our sickness on him when he died on the cross. And so we should never expect to ever experience sickness. They distort Isaiah 53, 5, which reads, as I memorized it in the King James, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Isaiah is referring primarily to the healing of our spiritual condition. We are born dead in trespasses and sin, and through the blood of Jesus we are changed into new creations. We are made alive in Christ. The false teachers teach that sickness is always from the devil, and that if you're sick, then you just need to, quote, take authority over the sickness and command it to be gone. And this, te- this teaching makes man out to be so much more than what he really is. And it makes God to be so much less than he really is. After all, if the devil can thwart God's will, then God isn't really very powerful, is he? Now, certainly God has healed in the past, and he continues to heal today. And don't get me wrong, it is good for us to pray for healing for our loved ones or ourselves. Alan Lefter, while ago, Lefter mentioned our prayer sheet. We have a long list of prayer requests for those who are suffering physical illnesses. And we do trust and pray that God can, and, and it may be in his will to heal. And we pray and trust those things and, and ask him for those things. But that is his decision, not ours. But sickness is not something that takes God by surprise either um, or inflicts his children against his will. Rather, God will often use sickness for his own purposes or even for his own glory. And one such example of this appears in John 9, 1 through 3. The scripture reads, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So we must remember that God not only ordains the ends, but he also ordains the means to those ends. If you or your loved ones are suffering sickness, then it's right and good to pray for God's mercy and healing touch. We've seen many in this church who have been healed of their diseases, and we praise God for that. And yet our attitude should always be, not my will, but yours be done. I believe you'll find that it is often his will to heal, but at other times it's not. And we are to be content and rest in his sovereignty. The next point, number four, is don't shoot the messenger. So in verse 16 we read, So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? None of us like to be rebuked, and none of us like to hear bad news. So how many of you received a letter in the mail from the IRS, and as soon as you saw the envelope, your, your heart sank? The first time that this happened to me last year, I was concerned until I opened it to only find out it was announcing the stimulus check that it had already arrived weeks earlier. <clears throat> in this case, I was thinking the worst and was pleasantly surprised. But what if the letter was something to the effect that I was going to be audited? Uh, that would not have been pleasant news, but just because I didn't like the news I received... Uh, doesn't mean I should, the next day I should wait by the mailbox so that I can give that mailman a piece of my mind. 
That's absurd. And yet it's exactly what happens when we speak the truth of God's word. The world hates it. And hates us for communicating the truth that's in the pages of Scripture. John 15, 18 reads, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. The world is hostile to God. And yet he has ordained his people to speak the truth of his word. As Christians, we don't make up the things that we read in the Bible. We simply communicate uh, that which we read in the scripture and apply it to our world. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. That's from Matthew five thirteen through 14 So he's called us salt and light. Salt is a preservative, and it stings if it comes in contact with an open wound. The smallest light pierces the darkness. It would not be hard to see the flame of a single candle if it were the only light in a basketball gym with no windows. So when we as Christians proclaim that, yes, there is indeed a difference between men and women, this is an immutable trait that each of us has from the moment of our conceptions. It's impossible for a man to become a woman or for a woman to become a man. And no amount of dress-up or mutilation can change that fact. Jesus said that in Matthew 19.4, And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Next, if there's strife between two different ethnic groups, the answer is not to label one group as the oppressors and the other group as the victims and account the sins of the oppressor group against the victims down to their descendants while at the same time passing on the victim status down to the descendants of the original group. We live in a sinful world, and yes, unreasonable hatred exists between unbelievers. But that is true on many other fronts as well. And the answer is not reparations, but rather Christ. If I am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I am going to love my brother and sister regardless of their ethnicity. I will share the gospel with unbelievers regardless of their ethnicity. You want racial unity in this country? Preach Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 18-19 tells us, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now the things that I have mentioned are fighting words in this country. I'm sure that simply stating these biblical arguments are considered hate speech in some parts of the world. And every day it's becoming more and more that way in our country as well. Unfortunately, the don't shoot the messenger message needs to be told to Christians as well. And that's why Paul felt the need to say to the Galatians while he was sharing the true gospel message of grace alone through faith alone. Paul's message to the Galatians was one of tough love. To believe and teach a false gospel would be to propagate heresy and falsehood. If they persisted in holding to heresy, they could very well show themselves to be reprobate. His message of rebuke to them, and now this fatherly love expressed to them, shows the true concern that he has for their souls. 
which leads us to our last point. The rebuke is only due to love. Paul's rebuke to the Galatians was entirely due to his love to them. And like a loving father advising his child about hanging out with the wrong crowd, Paul says in verse 17, They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. Paul is speaking here once again of the false apostles. These false apostles were doing their best to discredit Paul and write doctrine and lead the Galatians back into the legalism of Judaism. The truth of the gospel is always offensive to heretics. True Christians are always blamed for the woes of society. And it was the Christians who Nero blamed for the burning of Rome, which he actually did himself. Things never change, for it is the Christians today who are labeled hate mongers and blamed for all the strife and dissension in our modern world. Martin Luther said, The teaching of Paul and the other apostles was blamed for famine, war, dissension, and sex. They were persecuted as enemies of the public peace and of religion. Yet the apostles did not stop, but constantly preached and confessed Christ. They knew that they must obey God rather than men. Acts 5.29 And it was better for the whole world to be in an uproar than that Christ not be preached or that one's soul should be neglected and perish. So just as it was in ancient Rome, so it was in the 16th century, and so it is today. In verse 18, Paul contrasts himself with the false apostles. Though they were seeking the Galatians not commendably, Paul was seeking them commendably. This means that he had their best interest at heart. And And that interest was simply the proclamation of the truth of the gospel for the good of their own souls. Paul did not tell them what they wanted to hear. He told them what they needed to hear. And Paul did not have his own interest in mind. He certainly wasn't in it for the money. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9, 14 through 18, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I have used none of these things. And I am not writing these things so that it will be done in my case. For it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So this is the attitude of a true pastor for the congregation entrusted to his care. In the last phrase of verse 18, Paul says, And not only when I am present with you. By this he means for them to be encouraged and admonished by his letter to them. And by extension, any other letters that Paul wrote to the church that the Galatians may have been able to gain access to. But in this last phrase, Paul declares to you and I, that he sought us in a commandable manner as well. Paul's epistles are a treasure trove of truth that have been preserved throughout the ages by God himself. Charismatics like to point to Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 to justify the ongoing offices of apostles and prophets. It reads, And he gave some 
as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And yet, there are no modern-day apostles and prophets. If that is true, are we missing their ministry for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ? Not at all. Paul was one of those serving as an apostle. A day doesn't go by where I am not equipped for the work of service by the work of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. Paul ends this section of Scripture, uh, though the chapter continues, with the most loving and compassionate words that we find in this whole letter. In verses 19 and 20 we read, My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. The word labor in this verse could be taken simply to mean work. <clears throat> However, the Greek word used here is hodino, which means to have birth pains. So Paul is speaking here of the new birth. And that's why he says that he is laboring until Christ is formed in us. Or he says, in you speaking even to us in this modern day as well. We are all familiar with the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You must be born again. That is the heart cry of true ministers of God's gospel. They long for those whom they teach to be born again. When we are born again, Christ is formed in us. We grow to become more and more like him over the course of our lifetimes. And that is the goal that Paul has in mind for the Galatians. He goes on to say, But I wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. We've seen in this section of Scripture that Paul uses a very gentle tone with his readers, whereas earlier he was more harsh. The written word is a great way to preserve instruction throughout the centuries, but it does have a limitation of being able to gauge its effect on the hearers. On a personal basis, some people who are hard-hearted may need a stern rebuke, and a, and a soft answer may just be ignored or despised by them as, as one's showing signs of weakness. And for others who are more tender-hearted, a stern rebuke may crush them and deprive them of hope, while a tender word may be just what they need in order to show the love of Christ to them. And so God has seen fit to place elders in his church in order to know the congregation personally. Because we are sinners like everyone else, elders may not always handle every case appropriately. We may be too harsh or we may be too soft. But I want you to know that our desire is always to share God's word with you for, your, for his glory and for your good. And my prayer for each of you is that Christ would be formed in you and that you would be sanctified by the truth of God's word according to the prayer of our Lord in John 17:17. 17, 17. That reads sanctify them by your truth your word is truth. Keep the message of the Galatians at the forefront of your mind. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone according to scripture alone and all for the glory of God alone. And that is a part from any of our own works. So let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this section of scripture from Galatians.
Thank you, Lord, of your emphasis over and over that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. And that there's no works that we can do. Not the observing of special days, not circumcision, not, not our own works of any, of any sort. I pray, Lord, that we would not trust in our own works, but that we would trust completely upon you. For you have determined and saved your people. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the sacrifice that you paid on the cross for our sins. And we thank you for rising again from the dead and conquering death, hell, and the grave. We praise you this day. We pray that you would be glorified in the week to come as we go about our lives. May we be ambassadors for you in this dark and dying world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.